0: Hi folks, it's Rabbi Sharon Brous here. You are listening to IKAR's podcast where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our guest speakers, our teachers, anything we think worth listening to that we can capture, you can hear right here. Thank you so much for being with us. Rabbi Panitz and I did not coordinate today, and yet he and I are both inspired by the confluence of events when Dr. King's birthday weekend coincides with Parshat Beshalach. I love when this happens. It's not every year, but it does happen with some frequency because the narrative of our ancestors finally emerging from the long, dark night of captivity and crossing the sea into the dawn of their liberation is so pregnant with meaning for our time. And Dr. King was not about to let us forget it. For him, this was no bedtime story. It wasn't even meant to be descriptive. It was meant to be prescriptive. It wasn't past. It was very much about the present. And we know that Dr. King loved this story because he spoke about it all the time. One of my favorite sermons of his is the one that Rabbi Pan had cited earlier, the one that he delivered for the first time two years after Brown v. of Ed, 1954. It's called The Death of Evil Upon the Seashore, and he iterated on that sermon many times over the course of the next many years. He proclaimed that when the Israelites witnessed the bodies of the Egyptians washed up against the shore, they knew that it meant that evil in the form of injustice and exploitation cannot survive. There is a Red Sea in history, he said, that ultimately comes to carry the forces of goodness to victory, and that same Red Sea closes in to bring doom and destruction to the forces of evil. This is the very heart of my theology, as many of you know. This is the fuel of my spiritual life and my political commitments. This is the heart of our communal work to build a more just city and nation and world. And you know, we could talk together on this Shabbat, this sacred weekend when we celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. King about Dr. King's great dream. The great dream in which his children and all of our children are judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. We could pay homage to Dr. King's dream of a world which he very much believed we could achieve. A dream that has fueled and inspired social movements, not only here in this country, but around the world. But today is my son's bar mitzvah. And I am afraid that Levi, along with all of our kids, is growing up in a world in which we flatten our Torah and we defang our heroes, taking the firepower out of their words precisely when we need them the most. A world in which rabbis and pastors quote from Torah while denigrating the image of God every day by supporting policies that are absolutely contemptuous of their fellow human beings, a world in which public officials invoke Dr. King's name and representative John Lewis's heroism while supporting the very agendas that counteract and undermine everything that those great men fought for. So on this Shabbat, I beg us to move beyond the platitudes, to move beyond the performative celebration of Dr. King and to engage him and his legacy for what they truly were, which I believe our world needs desperately today. Dr. King was a pastor and a public theologian, a father, husband, and a son, who was willing to stare into the eyes of political leadership and power brokers and name moral failure when he saw it. In July of 1963, a journalist sat down with Dr. King and asked him if he believed that major civil rights legislation would pass in the United States. And this is what Dr. King said. I think the tragedy is that we have a Congress with a Senate that has a minority of misguided senators who will use the filibuster to keep the majority of people from even voting. They don't want the majority of people to vote because they know that they do not represent the majority of the American people. That was 1963. There's a reason that Strom Thurmond, Senator from South Carolina worked so single-mindedly to block federal recognition of Dr. King's birthday in the 1980s. It is not because Dr. King had a dream. It's because As he said, King held radical political views. So I wanna say before you today that yes, Dr. King was a radical. If radical means believing that all people living in this, the wealthiest nation in the world, deserve to have enough food to feed their children. If radical means articulating without apology the threats that face America, our addiction to violence, poverty, and racism. A radical like Dr. King would have been furious reading about Kroger supermarkets this past week, that massive food chain that has brought in record profits these past two years, whose workers struggle to make enough money to pay for rent and their groceries, what Levi would argue are absolute essentials, things that we cannot live without. Journalists this week found that 14% of full-time Kroger workers are currently homeless or have been homeless in the past year. Dr. King would not have stood for that. It is criminal to have people working a full-time job getting part-time income, he would say. Dr. King was a radical, if radical means building multi-faith and multiracial coalitions, fusion movements to end unjust forever wars and to propel economic reforms. Do you know what Dr. King's final sermon was called? Why America may go to hell. I want you to take notes that Dr. King was not telling America to go to hell. He was warning us that without radical action, that is precisely where we were heading. That's the sermon that Dr. King was busy writing in room 306 of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. That's what he was holding in his heart as he worried for the sanitation workers and their families, as his heart ached over the ongoing war in Vietnam, as he witnessed black Americans perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity, as he said. We know this. We know this was the sermon he was planning to deliver that Sunday because he called his mother that afternoon and he shared the title of his upcoming sermon with her. Moments later, Dr. King stepped out onto the balcony and was murdered. Why America may go to hell. In that sermon, Dr. King planned to warn his church, America is going to hell if we don't use her vast resources to end poverty and make it possible for all of God's children to have the basic necessities of life. Pretty radical thinking, right? The radical king fought not only for equality in rights, but also equality in reality. It isn't enough to integrate our lunch counters, he said. What does it profit a man to be able to eat at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't have enough money to buy a hamburger? I say this today because Levi, you are right. The lesson that you draw from B'nai Yisrael in the desert, the lesson of those endless complaints for food and for water is right. As Dr. King planned to say on that Sunday, in that final sermon, nothing is gained without pressure. Never forget that freedom is something that must be demanded by the oppressed, Dr. King wrote. If we're gonna get equality, he said, if we're gonna get adequate wages, we are going to have to struggle for it. And that according to Dr. King, was how we make real the promise of democracy. That's how we make justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Not through empty platitudes, but through difficult truths, through courageous stands, and yes, sometimes through radical action. I've been thinking about all of this as I've studied this parasha in advance of Levi's bar mitzvah. And like Dr. King and like Levi, I'm swept up in the drama of this story. And like both of them, my heart is also drawn to a few details which I find teeming with meaning for our time. Here's one of them that I invite you to hold with me on this Shabbat of truth-telling. B'nai Israel, as we just heard, is standing in terror at the water's edge. It's the dark of night. Levi described it for us. Moshe lifts his arms and the people enter the waters. And then it says in chapter 14, verse 22, The children of Israel enter the sea, walking on dry land, and the water stands like walls on their right side and on their left. How much ground did the Israelites cover this way in this tunnel between walls of water. We don't really know. I have seen estimates ranging from three to 11 miles this way. It took them many hours, however you calculated, in the midst of the sea on dry land. But at some point in that long, terrifying, awesome crossing, the Egyptians start after them. Every one of Paro's horses, every chariot of Egypt. All night long, the Egyptians pursue the Israelites in the midst of the sea, Ultimately, God confounds the Egyptians, creates turmoil, and the water closes on their heads just at the break of dawn. But there's a problem in the text, because after describing all of that in detail, chapter 14, verse 29, repeats nearly verbatim the exact verse that we just saw. The children of Israel walked on dry land in the midst of the sea. And the water stands like walls on their right side and on their left. If you don't believe me, look it up. Almost the identical pasuk appears twice in verse 22 and then again in verse 29. The Torah is very careful with its language. Why would it be that the same verse is repeated twice in the midst of this narrative? The Ora Chaim, who's an 18th century Moroccan rabbi, suggests that the repetition's just a literary device. Its goal is to emphasize for the Egyptians and for the whole world, how incredible this miracle was that B'nai Yisrael experienced. But Ibn Ezra, who is the great 12th century Spanish commentator offers something far more terrifying and I believe more important for us today when the water began to close in on the Egyptians that night, there were Israelites who still had not yet made it to the other side. How was it, I ask you today, that in our great liberation story, we allowed some Israelites to make it to freedom's shore and we let others be left behind to the mercy of either the Egyptian forces or the water that's caving in around them. Who were they? Who were those Israelites who were still scrambling to make it across? Who were the stragglers? Of course, it was the elderly, it was the weak, it was the sick, it was the children, those already most vulnerable in Israelite society. Now, how does the story end? As we got to the end of our parasha, we read that B'nai Yisrael suffers a brutal attack by Amalek in the desert. Lots of tribes attack Amalek in their 40 years in the desert. Why does Amalek become Israel's eternal enemy? In Deuteronomy, we learn that it's not just that they attacked, it's that they attacked from behind, targeting the weakest and the most vulnerable of our people. So Amalek, they were the ultimate cowards. And we, we were traitors to our own especially to the most vulnerable among us. The lesson that we derive from this is, be careful who you leave behind. If only B'nai Yisrael had learned that lesson at the sea, then so many lives would not have been lost at the hands of Amalek. To honor Dr. King, the saint, we would say on this Shabbat, redemption is possible. The night is long, the path is fraught, but we too can step into the raging waters and cross over to freedom's shore on dry land. And I believe that. But to honor Dr. King, the radical, we have to match that message and go further. This story is not yet over. Shame on us that then and now we continue to fail to learn the lesson of history. To honor the real Dr. King this weekend, we have to be honest. We don't know how this experiment of democracy will turn out it very well may be that America will go to hell. We only need to look to this week to see how profoundly unwilling some of our political leadership is to step into the fray, to protect the rights and the dignities of those historically disenfranchised. How effortlessly some of our senators have wedded themselves to the rules over the rights and the dignities of so many human beings. Meanwhile, if you wanna see the full scope and scale of American ingenuity, Look at how far our lawmakers have gone to keep certain Americans from voting. Poll taxes, grandfather clauses, the threat of bloodshed, beatings, mob violence, gerrymandering literacy tests, and brilliantly felony convictions crafted intentionally to disenfranchise black voters. When the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, they claimed that all of this was in our past. Presumably that chapter of history had been closed. And yet over the last several years, voter suppression and voter subversion has reached a fevered pitch, now cynically coded as voter integrity efforts. How can they get away with this? In the spirit of the radical king, I say this to us today, exploitation, oppression, suppression, subversion, these things can only continue in our time when enough of those who have reached the shore of freedom are prepared to turn their backs on those who are still scrambling to escape harm's way. Those people existed in Dr. King's time too. He understood them as an even greater threat to black justice, to equal justice, to American democracy than the White Citizens Council and the Ku Klux Klan. It was the white moderates, he decried, more devoted to order than they are to justice, who prefer a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly say, I agree with the goals you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feel that they can set a timetable for someone else's freedom. Ibn Ezra, says that it took a miracle of miracles for those stragglers to survive. The ones who the others were willing to leave behind as they crossed the sea. It was a miracle on top of a miracle that they made it out of the sea alive as the waters collapsed. In the end, all the people made it to freedom in our story. And that is an incredible testament to God's glory. But it took a miracle upon miracles to get there. Today, we don't have the luxury of waiting for a miracle from God. We learn the lessons of history and we make those miracles happen ourselves, even if others consider that to be radical. I hope that today we can all find hope because even though we are hurting, we are also learning. We know now that there is no victory until everyone, literally everyone, made it out of Paro's grasp. Then, and only then, will we be able to pick up our timbrels and join together in song. Only then will we be able to sing a song of praise for oppression and evil have finally drowned in the sea and justice, true justice is born. Shabbat shalom. Hi, it's Mayim Bialik, actor, neuroscientist, Ekar member, and lover of all things Jewish. Do you like what you're listening to? Please consider donating to Ekar so that we can continue creating more podcasts and fulfilling our mission of harnessing untapped energy in the Jewish community to reanimate Jewish life, embody moral courage, nurture the spirit, and work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Why don't you visit our website at ecar laorg and give today.